Well, this is one of our fifth Sunday family services. We do these four times a year, whenever there's five Sundays in a, in a month. And I love them, and here's why. These, um, there's a story <laughs> where Jesus is trying to teach and the kids are interrupting. And the apostles step in and try to remove them and say, hey, come on, the master's teaching. You don't have to call me master, but if you want to, that's okay. But um, uh, they were like, be quiet, the master's teaching. And Jesus rebukes them and he says, let the kids have fun. So this is a test. If during this service while we're talking, you find yourself getting grumpy that kids are being noisy, you're on the wrong side of the test. So that's up to you. Um, so we're in, book, we're in the book of Acts. This is our book study. Um, we're going to be here until November, so settle in. And we've been, uh, we've been opening with a, with a recap each week. You can make all the noise you want, David. That is totally cool. So we've been opening with a recap um, every week just to kind of hold the narrative thread together while we've been kind of adding a new piece on the end every time. But um, this week, Judy actually turned me on to some videos um, and for fun, I went and watched the ones about Acts. And he has a neat kind of overview of this section that he calls the Tale of Two Temples, um, which I think is pretty telling. Because as we've been telling these stories, Luke will tell us what's happening, but then he also kind of pulls back for a second and kind of tells you the, the social and cultural implications of what was happening. So he'll tell you about this big explosive moment when the church, the Holy Spirit falls on the church and then Peter comes out and preaches this big sermon and 3,000 people get saved. And he pulls back for a second and says, because of that, people started sharing their stuff. And they were living in one accord. And they were breaking bread together. And they were, he kind of gives you this overview. And he says, and people's needs were getting met because of what the church was doing. The poor were getting preached to. And then he zooms back in and tells this story about Peter going to temple and healing a guy and how it kind of made a stir and... Uh, and uh, people gathered around to find out what had just happened. And Peter preaches another message. And 5,000 people get saved. And then it pulls out again. And it says, because of this, some people were selling their stuff. They were giving it to the poor. And people were sharing things. And everybody held everything kind of in common in one accord. And so he's kind of constantly giving what is happening. And then also what it's doing to the area around him. What the cultural implications are. And what's happening here is that the church is starting to fulfill some of the things that Israel was supposed to do in the first place. That, and all, really what the temple was supposed to do. The temple was supposed to be a place where people came to get access to God and they came to get their physical needs met. There was a storehouse in the temple that you were supposed to donate to so that widows, orphans, and travelers, sojourners through the land, strangers, could always come and get a meal. And so the church was always supposed to be this place. And really... This isn't on accident. The church really only had two things to go on as it was starting. They had the, the Tanakh, which is the, the Torah, the five original books, the histories, the poetic writings, and the, uh, and the prophets. They had those writings that they'd been used to their whole life. And then they had three years worth of teachings from Jesus. And the, so what they're doing is they're, they're going back to the Torah, going back to the Old Testament through the lens of the things that Jesus is teaching them. So they'll read something like this, a verse we talked about a few weeks ago where it says, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the poor, and to your needy in your land. So they read this verse that says you're supposed to take care of the poor. And then all of a sudden they read it through this lens 
of Jesus saying, when you do this to the least of your brethren, you're doing it unto me. And so they're reading the same old scripture only through a new lens and they're understanding this isn't just like an ethical rule. This isn't just like a moral thing that you're supposed to do to be a good person. This is part of our worship. They're understanding what Jesus says, when you do this to the least of your brothers, you're doing it unto me. They're starting to understand, oh, those commands we read in the Old Testament aren't just about being a good person. They're about this is how we relate to God. This is how we, we, we show God we love him is by caring for other people. And, so, and they're doing this all over the place. They're, they're finding these commands that they were used to and they're seeing them in a new way because of the cross. They're, they're wearing the cross like goggles that they can use to go back and look at the Old Testament. That's actually going to be what happens in our story today. Well, this starts to bother the people who were the, who's drew their source of power from the current temple. The people who drew their kind of their their position and power from the current temple were threatened by this because now there's this new group of people who are coming and kind of taking their place and kind of doing the things that they were supposed to do, and so they're threatened. And so they step up um, and start to answer that threat. And today's story is when that threat really gets heavy. And you have to know, if I was better at scheduling things out and planning, I never would have put the stoning of Stephen on a family service. I promise you that. Like, I sat down to do my study this week and just went, what in the world? I'm going to teach this to kids. This is awesome. So, but here we are. That's where we are. And I'm just, so we're going to go through it. So, here's our verse. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom, <coughs> excuse me, the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came to him, seized him, and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses and said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered us. And gazing at him, they all, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So if this is a Disney movie, we now have our hero, right? We've got our protagonist. We've got our good guy. We've got Stephen. He does the right thing. He stands out in a crowd like everybody loves. He's even handsome. They, like they looked at him and said, the dude's got a face like an angel. So this is your classic Disney good guy, right? And just like every Disney story, um, he's making somebody jealous. Somebody's upset. And so we know this story. They have to remove him. Yeah, so you got your good guy. He's a threat to the bad guy. And so he's got to be eliminated, right? He's got to be removed. And uh, in our story, Simba um, runs. But in, in today's story, Stephen stays. He stays to stand trial. And the trial is simple. The high priest just asked him, are these things so? He's made, they've, they've said that he's, he's teaching bad things. He's teaching wrong things. And so he has to basically go to trial to explain himself. And since Peter's accused of teaching the wrong stuff, what he does is he goes back and tells the council what he's been teaching. <coughs> he tells them 
kind of the Old Testament story that he's been holding on to. And he goes all the way back to Abraham and he tells this story step by step. And it's really long. And he uh, kind of he brings it all the way up to, to current day. But the way he tells it, it's the same story, but he pulls out these patterns that have risen up in the story again and again. So it's not that he, he doesn't change the story at all. He just tells it in a way that it brings to light things that they're used to missing. And this is fairly common. So, Ice Age. So there's this drawing on the wall written by humans about when the measly little humans brought down the big vicious mammoth, you know, with nothing but their spears to feed the tribe, you know, and it's this recording of the history. And then the history gets retold from the mammoth side, right? It's the same history. Nothing's changed in the story, but it's a whole different story. It tells completely differently when it's told this way. And that's kind of what Stephen does here. And here's kind of the high points. <coughs> Stephen says, and the patriarchs, he's telling the history of Israel's people. He says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Then he goes on about Moses and says, and suppose that his brothers, or suppose, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Pulls out another part, even nearer to that day when he says, which of your, which of the, <coughs> excuse me, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So in the telling of the story, he starts to set out this pattern of it seems like everyone God sends to Israel throughout its history they reject. And so he's almost saying, is it a shocker that you missed Jesus? This seems to be what our people have done forever. Moses showed up and they rejected him. And he actually makes it, he goes through Joseph, Moses, the prophets, all the way up to Jesus. And he makes it even more clear here. When he says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Talking about Moses, this is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but, uh, but thrust him aside, and their hearts they turned to Egypt. This is all in the Torah. Stephen's not adding anything new. He's telling the same story that they've always told. He's just... He's showing them what they missed. He's showing them kind of the twist here. And he says, <clears throat> almost like he's saying, you, you've been looking for a prophet who acts and looks like Moses. What you should have been looking for is a prophet who gets rejected like Moses. Like that's almost how you can know it's from God. If, our, if the pattern holds true, the way to know this is from God is if our people reject him. If our people reject him, it's probably from God. That's what we've always done. And when you go through the prophets, it's just like prophet after prophet. The people killed them and persecuted them and ignored them. And so he's, he's showing up. Thank you, Elijah. Whoever that was. I'm going to move it over here, though. So at this point in the story, we're fine because we're a Disney people, right? We know that this... This, the people are, it says that they stopped their ears at, at 
Stephen's story. They're, they're furious at the way this is going. And we still don't worry because we know that every Disney story has this like really dramatic climax before Prince Charming comes in or before, you know, the heroine pulls out her bow and saves the day or before, you know, the cavalry rides and saves everybody. So no stress. And Stephen has every right to expect this because at this point in the story, Peter's been arrested. Was it four times? Three times? Three or four times? Four times. I don't know. And he's been set free every single time, once by an angel. So, like, it, it, Stephen has every right to expect that he's, he's going to do fine here. Like, he, he, all he has to do is tell his story, and he's going to be saved. Ultimately, the cavalry is going to ride in, Prince Charming is going to show up and give him a kiss, and everything's going to be fine. But that's not what happens. So very Disney. Love it, true sight. They've known each other for like three minutes in this scene, <laughs> which is perfectly Disney. We've seen it a thousand times. You've know, you got love at first sight, a little scare in the middle, and then happily ever after, right? And that's, what, that's where Stephen is standing in a totally predictable story. So far it's happened several times with Peter. We know how it's going to end. Everything's going to be fine. Except, kids, how does this one end? Anybody know? Was it love at first sight? He's a bad guy. Disney embraces the postmodern narrative. Okay, kids, are you ready for this? I'm going to teach you something to make you sound smart in any situation. Remember this. Hang on. You don't even have to know what it means. You just hang on to it. If ever someone's talking and you don't understand what they're talking about, you just go, that's that postmodern narrative. That's all you have to say. And if they go, what do you mean? You just go, I know, right? What do you mean? And, you're, and believe it or not, you're saying the right thing. It actually, it, you're actually, it actually means something. So, <clears throat> but our story here is almost postmodern in that way. It says, "But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young young man named Saul." What? This is not how it's supposed to end, right? We don't even know what to do with this. Like, why does Luke even tell this story? Why does he choose to put this one in there? Why tell the sad stories? Where's our happily ever after? But, this is kind of where the story flips. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen gets all of his question answered. All the big ones. Is God real? Is He even out there? What happens when you die? Is all of this worth it? Stephen gets all the answers. There may not be if you think about it, a better happily ever after than Stevens. It's not what we would want. It's not what we would script. But if at the end of the day, if at the end of whatever story I'm supposed to be a part of, I'm standing there and the heavens are opened, and I'm like, I see God and Jesus standing at His right hand, then I had a happily ever after. You can't ask for more than that. And what's cool is it's like, it's like he, almost like he was trying to comfort him. Stephen like yells out 
like in the last moment, like, I'm all good. Like, it's, it's good with me. I'm fine. I got my happily ever after. So what do we do with a story like this? Like, how do we apply something like this? And here's what I hope in our response time you'll hang on to. Is that maybe as you consider your story, maybe we let God write the ending. Rather than try and script the way you think it should be, the way you think everything should go, the way, what success would look like to you, what a, what a happily ever after is supposed to be, maybe we let God write that. Because I promise you it's going to be better than anything you write. And for our church, like if every single one of us would, were to sit down and script what, what it would look like if Open Table Community Church were successful, I guarantee every single one of us would have it wrong and God's is probably going to be better. God's story, he just writes a better story. Most of us would have been happy if Hans and Anna had just gotten married. Like love at first sight. Who doesn't love that story? But there was a better story to be told. And it meant things weren't going to go the way we thought they were going to go. But it turns out it was the right story. So I hope that as we read Stephen's story, and here's what's cool about, here's what's most cool about this story, is this is just a, by all accounts, this should be a terrible story. This is a crash and burn story. This is our first martyrdom story in the church. The first person who died for their faith. Fox's Book of Martyrs, this book that where John Fox compiles a bunch of martyrs through history and tells their story, starts with Stephen. That's the first story he tells, and he carries on from there. This is technically a bad story, but billions of people have drawn hope from Stephen's story over, over history. Because if you think about it, at this point in the church, Stephen, more than anything else the, the apostles had done theologically, more than anything they had done by going back to the Torah and, and retelling the Old Testament stories and trying to figure out who Jesus was, Stephen, in this one moment, does more to show just how fundamentally things have changed because of the resurrection. In, in this moment, when he stands there in the moment of death and says, I see the heavens open and the Son of God standing at the right hand of God the Father. In that moment, more than anything you could do theologically, he re-scripted what was fundamentally changed about life and death. And Christians, like, the one thing we hope when we're losing someone we love, when someone we love is passing, the one thing we hope happens for them, we don't have to guess with Stephen. Because he called out, I see it. It's right there in front of me. So hopefully, we can understand that, that, that good things can come out of brokenness. That good things can come out of things falling apart. A lot of us are, are sitting here today because we were beat up somewhere else. Because we were at another church and things didn't go our way. Things, things happened. Things fell apart. A lot of us are in marriages because the first marriage fell apart and tanked. And for some reason we're sitting here in a great marriage with kids we love and everything's fantastic 
And you just wonder how that can be. It's because God can build beautiful things out of brokenness. You got the story of a, of a guy standing up for his faith and being stoned for it. And out of that comes this hope that every single one of us can look at and say, maybe death isn't as terrible as I thought it was. If I see the heavens open and God's glory shining down on me, whew. Our best metaphor, of course, is the cross. It's a terrible story. It's a terrible story. It's a story of torture. It's a story of death. It's a, it's a story of vengeance and jealousy. And a man being completely and utterly broken and destroyed. And from that springing life eternal. And so when we come to the table, I just pray that you'll let the, the bread and the cup tonight just give you hope. Just give you hope that when things are, are broken, when things seem bad, when things seem like they're not working out, when things seem to be falling apart and nothing's working out, it's not the end of the story. That's not where it stops. God writes a better ending. And I pray that you'll just own your brokenness and drag it in here so we can love on you and let God write the rest of the story.